It's the same old story. It's been a long day at the job, or maybe it's just starting to feel long, and you feel that urge to stretch your legs and get a little bit of a break. You walk down the street, or maybe you get behind the wheel of your car, and you feel the weight begin to lift. You walk through the doors, and the sound of the place starts to clear the air. You get a table, you order your drink, you listen to the sounds of the bar, and soak in the conversation. Welcome to the TNE Speakeasy with your hosts, Caleb and Isaac. Now's the time for Gab and Chatter as we discuss the 2019 film, The Lighthouse. I said in the last one <laughs> of Geek Solutions how we felt about. Yes. Caleb, how did you feel about The Lighthouse? <laughs> yeah, I wrote on my board, this film made me feel like 100 years later, there's still a market for 20s expressionist films on the big screen. I have a similar... Similar thing? Similar thing to that, in a way. This film tapped into my underrated appreciation for black and white filmmaking, minimal production, and turn-of-the-century stories. Nice, nice. Flipping my sign over right now, if we had signs, <laughs> I'm feeling it. Yeah, well, glad to hear that, yeah. Yeah, no, this was a, another breath of fresh air. I remember seeing a YouTube video, I didn't click on it, but it had this as an example of professional filmmaking, indie filmmaking, and then no budget. This is an example? This wasn't a, the, well, the, the video was using it as an example. I didn't watch it, but like... Yeah, because I think it had a relatively reasonably sized budget. I think it was about four million. So I mean that's just not necessarily no budget. That's surprising. It might have even been a little bit less, let me see. I don't know if that's in your notes or not. It isn't actually. Well, I mean it's just like Joker. Where that only had a jeez, what was it? Ten million dollar budget? Oh wow. I think I must be wrong. It's four million. I think I'm I think I'm screwing that up. You think it was less than that or more? Oh more. Jeez. What does that all go to? Well, I mean, they, the whole lighthouse set, all that stuff they built. Barely any CG in this film. No, it was four million. Wow. Okay, nice. Yeah, four million. Using Wikipedia of yep. this information. Yeah, so do you remember when this film was coming out? Like, did you have much excitement to see this it? This was or? right when I was in the play. Oh, so that was yes, when yes. I wasn't really going to movies as much. Mm-hmm. That was, that, that's foreshadowing things <laughs> to come, of course. And me not seeing, watching films in theaters, for different reasons, of course. <laughs> I brought that on myself, because I was still going to gym class, and I could have easily skipped gym class and gone to these films, but that was, or go watch this, but I did want to see it, because I think you told me it was by the same guy who did The Vich. Yep, that's that's right, yeah. And I would have loved to see that. Yeah, and we both saw that together back in, I guess, 2015? We saw 16? it in 15. Or sixteen with Johnny, yeah. and I, I believe it was Fred Parker. Yeah, and the girl I was seeing at the time, Sierra. Oh, that's right. Yes, maybe it was just us four. Yeah, I think it was just the four of Never us. Mind. No, because I think it's Fred Parker came for Crimson Peak. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She was there too for that. Was she? Yep. I don't remember that. Okay. Yeah, and we were all a bunch of dicks seeing this movie. We were cracking jokes and laughing through the witch a ton. <laughs> it was remember. fun. It honestly <laughs> was fun. 
I feel bad for the other audience members because we were probably assholes. But... Uh, we probably were, but... Anyway, I guess we were. Yeah, and I do like that film, but for whatever reason, I find it hard to take it seriously. Oh, is it all the acting? Uh, the I think the acting's good. I just think some of the dialogue is feels a little bit silly. Even and if, the even goat... If it, even, sorry, if it, even if it is set in... That yeah, yeah. Uh, it's... Like those two little kids, I don't know if you remember her two little sisters. I remember the two little siblings. Some of their stuff, especially when they're supposed to be possessed by demons, I think just comes off as unintentionally comedic. Okay. And some of the stuff with the goat villain is also a little... And the bunny, too, is a little unintentional. I like the ending, though, when Satan shows up. Mm-hmm. That was, that was kind of cool. Yeah, that was a good scene. That was a really good scene. Yeah, so even though I kind of thought that movie was a little bit not quite all it was hyped up to be at the time, because it was, of course was like sweeping the horror community everyone was of course it was absolutely raving about it and I was like it was a good film I think this director has a lot of potential but I wasn't super blown away by that and he hasn't made a film since then eh yeah this was until his... this film yes and in the meantime the studio that produced this film A24 was having like a huge boom at the time and I was seeing a ton of their films and so I was like oh they're putting this out what else has the studio been making or releasing well, they put out um, the Denis Villeneuve film Enemy, Yes, which is a film I really, really like. They put out Under the Skin with Scarlett Johansson, that kind of weirdo surrealist alien flick. Green Room. Oh, oh yes, saw, Green right? Room. Right, I saw that one. With yeah. Tony. Uh, there's a great little film called Lock with Tom Hardy. It's just Tom Hardy driving around in a car the whole movie, taking calls, and best film of his career, I think. Jeez. Amazing film. The <laughs> Spring Breakers, which you said you didn't like, but <laughs> I, I, I like that movie a lot. Uh, I, Ex Machina, you know. Oh, nice. I love that film. You know, maybe if I watched it again, I might like it, but it's... It's, it's a weird a, film. It, not Ex Machina, I meant Spring, Spring Breakers. Yeah, Spring just, Breakers. There was a lot of that culture that was in there, and I don't like that culture, so... But that's fair. But it's it's like a weird kind of comment on it. It's it's a strange it's film. A, I know, it's a, it's a strange <laughs> film. Oh, they also put out a weird little one called Black Coat's Daughter, if you've heard of that. I really like that film. Um... Can't say I have. Yeah, and Hereditary and It Comes at Night, Midsummer, and just a ton of films that I was. Seeing I haven't seen those on. Swedish films. Oh, is it Swedish films? Uh, well, Hereditary, 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 and Midsummer. Yeah. Is it the same director? Or am I yep. wrong that? Yeah. Ari Aster, who's actually a friend of Robert Akers. Oh. Yeah, they're I mean, that now. It's buds, cool. apparently. Um, so yeah, I I was mainly just kind of swept up in the A24 buzz at the, at the time when this came out. I guess it wasn't that long ago, so I sort of still am, but. Haven't been seen yeah, they're movies. they're much better. They're way better than the asylum. Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, that that's fair. And uh, what's the other? Maybe maybe Blumhouse. Blumhouse. Except yeah. Blumhouse actually made a real movie this year. If anybody can believe that. Oh, with the uh, which which one? Invisible Man. Oh yeah, that's fair. That's Shit. a legit film, I would say. Yeah, and of course, Get Out had a bunch of. Oh uh, yes, right. I'm sorry, Get Out. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, that's a real film as well. Forgot that was Blumhouse. It's because us is Peel's own studio doing it, and not Blumhouse. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. Huh. I believe so. I don't think Blumhouse had anything to do with us. It's interesting. I do, I do, I do say that us and Invisible Man take place in the same world. I could easily see it. <laughs> they just have a similar look to them. This makes me go, yeah, you could really be set in the same world. Anyway, sorry, that's. <laughs> Getting off topic, this is the lighthouse. Yes, the lighthouse, which is beyond any of these, which goes back to the tried and true nature of just the uh, two guys. Trent, not well, 
I don't know if stranded on the island is. Well, they eventually do become stranded on the island. But it almost feels like a stage play in that way, just the two of them. Especially the end title cards. That was those were nice credits. Yeah, that's cool. Hadn't seen credits in that. So let us now review it scene by scene, since yeah. it's not exactly a commentary we could talk about. Yeah, I, this is another one like Shockwaves, where I thought it was kind of too moody and too slow to really work as a commentary. Indeed. Uh, I just feel like there'd be lots of space to silence. But yeah, I guess jumping into it. We start spoilers. With, Sorry. Yeah, full spoilers. Definitely gonna be going through everything. Watch this if you haven't. Mm-hmm. It's on Amazon Prime, at least in Canadian land. Ask you guys not to do Amazon Prime to give <laughs> Bezos his monies, but that's just me. Yeah, I mean, I bought the copy. Amazon Prime, at least here in Canada, doesn't have full HD. And oh. so I was like, if oh, we're going to be watching this for a commentary, I'm going to buy it so I have full HD. Oh, but, man, we want yeah. full HD. Well, there's another reason why, you know, anybody listening up here don't watch it on Amazon Prime. Yeah. Prime. <laughs> Sorry, Prime. <laughs> uh, so we start the film with a sort of mini overture. Uh, we get a black screen with nothing but the ominous score filling our little teeny screening room here. Um, and then we first hear the foghorn start to kick in. But yeah, get used to that foghorn, because we're going to be hearing it all over this movie. Uh, the lighthouse, get... after all. Exactly, yeah. I don't. That lighthouse is almost a third character. <sighs> Absolutely. I think the whole <laughs> island is a third character. Yeah, that, no, that's fair. Definitely the island. Uh, but I just want to take a moment and say, I really miss overtures in movies. It, it's kind of yeah. shame they don't do them anymore. Like, especially like 2001. Yeah, oh, I love just, that. I literally, overture. when she said overtures, I looked like shotgun looked at Kubrick right there, and I was <laughs> like, yeah, no. We don't we don't do that anymore. I think it's it it just depends on the composer, honestly. Like you have to you, you they there are still composers and musicians that will do overtures. Again, film scores and and composers actual like orchestral sounds don't mm-hmm. aren't really used use much anymore. That's true. Everything's now you know on a synthesizer, machines. Yeah, you know it is what it is. I guess. I just always thought it was nice to kind of sit back and kind of soak in the mood of the film oh, before of course. it starts. And yeah, soak in the mood. Soak in the mood, yeah. yes. <laughs> There's a lot of water in this film. Yes, and we start on the water. We start with a very foggy shot. Reminded me of Bioshock Infinite's opening, by the way. Oh, uh, it's been too long. It has been too long, but it's like, it's DeWitt, he's he's on the boat, and there's those two twins. Not two twins, sorry. There's twins. Mm-hmm. That those recurring twins in the boat with him, and he's rowing the boat to the lighthouse, and it's all foggy and whatnot. And he goes oh, okay. What lighthouse just reminded me of that? Yeah, I love the lighthouse in that. God, I love that. I love all those Bioshock games. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, we get the foggy reveal of the ship. Oh, which is so far away that it just looks tiny. Yes. And immediately we see the scope of how tall the one nineteen aspect ratio is. Oh, I mean, yes, that's right. Very very tall frame. Do you think most of the budget was spent on cameras? On, like, camera equipment? Uh, you're probably building all that stuff on the island, but yeah, the cameras. Do you think, was, I didn't check this, but was the film on film? Yep, it was shot on film. It had to have been shot on film. Yeah, I actually have a bunch of notes here that I guess I'll jump into right away and get them out. Brought it up, so. Yeah. (laughs) So Eggers, right off the bat, knew he wanted to make the film in black and white, and he and his cinematographer decided that they were going to hone in on a very early form of black and white. One that you'll see mostly from the silent era, yep. uh, called orthochromatic emulsion. And the thing with that sort of uh, black and white, it doesn't really pick up red at all. 
So it makes uh, skin tone very muddy looking and dark. I like that. Yeah, it also makes blue and green extremely bright and sensitive, so on the island outside it's like super white skies but everything else is dark. Yep, that's, so I, that's one way of doing it. Yeah, and Fritz Lang used this kind of black and white a lot and uh, again a lot of silent film stuff. But they also shot this on an old school film stock called Kodak X Film. Uh, which is a pretty stellar black and white film stock that they still kind of use nowadays. Like they use it in Casino Royale, they use it in uh, Memento, and also Schindler's List. Well, I'm not going to say that's modern, but that is about 20 years ago. Except for maybe Casino Royale. But that's still like... Yeah, Memento is this, pretty uh, There's probably a lot of other indie films that have used that, that sort of film stock, but none that I know of, or I don't know if you've known any. Yeah, it seems like the one that they go back to a lot for black and white stuff in I the hope modern that era. Nolan at one point goes back to some a smaller story and maybe goes to black and white. That'd be cool. I mean, That'd he made cool. two black and white flicks. Or I guess not. Mental wasn't fully black and white, but following was. It'd be cool if he dealt in that. Anyway, sorry. They also managed to track down some super old lenses from Panavision. Panavision just dusted off some ones that had been sitting on their shelves for years. Here you go. Which is one of the reasons that the film looks as old as it does, because apparently they were using 100-year-old lenses. Nice. Yeah. So the boat gets to the island, and we get some shots of our two leads, but there's a bit of a distance to them. Uh, we only see them from behind at first, and they take forever before they even speak. This first half, Eggers really just focuses in on the harshness of the environment that they're going to be in. And uh, there's another great shot where he utilizes the height of the frame, where we see them lugging their luggage along. And they're at the very top of the frame, and there's all this rocks taking up most of it. Yes. And again, in the theater, that stuff was just it was so tall. It was really cool seeing that in the theater. And when I went in, I didn't even realize that it was going to be that different aspect ratio. So it was kind of a pleasant surprise to, to see that. I wonder what people have probably done. Film students have probably you know, analyzed this film to death and have probably made a argument for what the that shot itself means. Uh, I'm not a film student. I don't think I ever will be a film student, but like... Probably just to show how small they are and insignificant compared to the harshness of the, the world that they're going to be in. Yeah. Uh, but we see them quickly pass their, um, the guys they're replacing, and they don't even say a word to each other, which I thought was kind of... Previous uh, shifts. Yeah, previous shift. But once we enter their kitchen, we switch focus to Robert Pattinson's character, and... Ephraim? Yeah, e Ephraim, I think. Ephraim, but... excuse me. Uh, he heads up the stairs to their bedroom, and we get a brief look at our second character, played by Willem Dafoe. He's taking a leak into a chamber pot, and also rudely letting out some gas. Which, yeah, some beans. <laughs> yeah, and Pattinson stares at him, looking rather apathetic and displeased. Yeah, and I'll just say, all this fart humor, one of the downsides of seeing it in the theater, was kind of an annoying audience a little bit, especially in regards to all the fart jokes, because they all, every time it got a laugh, and... As the movie went on, the laughs just got bigger and bigger, which I'll point out. <laughs> um, again, I'm not the most highly intellectually jokish person, but listen, man, a fart's a fart. Yeah. I get why the audience laughs, it's just sometimes it kind of ruins the mood a little no, bit. No, that's fair. I... <sighs> was that was that the director's intention? Oh, yeah, it, it seemed like he loved that you can make a movie that's so serious, but also have fart jokes in it. Like, so... Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I will laugh at a fart joke, depending on what it is, of course. But I try to remain in the mood, let's put it that way. But it's also during this scene where Pattinson also briefly finds a mermaid pipe buried in his bed. 
which he pockets immediately. But after that, we get our first dialogue of the picture. And of course, it's Willem Dafoe's toast, which we'll hear many, many times throughout the film. Yes. Actually, yeah, they're having dinner, I believe, yes? Yep, dinner, yep. And his toast is... Should pale death with treble dread make the ocean caves our bed. God, who is the surge's role, deign to save our suppliant soul to four weeks. And in my research for the film, I found that this was actually an abridged poem. I thought so. Yeah, called I, The Sailor's Sam at Parting. I kind of figured. Yeah, and they, they changed some of the lines a little bit. It's not exact, but... You know what? On, even in the day, there's probably sailors that were paraphrasing it, perhaps. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. Thing. Something that you heard just kind of in passing and didn't really know the full thing. You know, London Bridge is Falling Down, or the Merry-Go-Round Song, or Mary Had a Little Lamb. People will change, you know, those lyrics sometimes. Yeah. Uh, what do you do with a drunken sailor? Like, you can... Again, it's up to any individual's imagination. Those public domain songs, I guess. That's fair. And yet, I read the whole poem. It's pretty brief. It's by Lydia Sigourney. Nice. And it's it's kind of a sad poem. It's mainly just about the sailor's life and the sailor's hardships. Yeah, sailors in the day were... That was a rough... I mean, it's they're no different than the army in a way. Except... Well, not really. But again, fighting on a different terrain. Yeah. And it's a terrain that's ever-shifting. Whereas, not to say that, you know, ground-level soldiers don't have shifting terrain, but let's, let's put it this way. When you're on the sea, like, it's always moving. Yep. It's always shifting. Rarely will the earth move unless there's, like, an earthquake or, you know, mortar shells and explosions and landmines occur, but and windstorms and mm-hmm. lightning storms, all that kind of stuff, rain, wind, but... The sea just does something to you, man. Yeah, constantly rocking and... I mean, I probably got this from somewhere, but my... The sea, she's a harsh mistress. Like, <laughs> it's true! Oh, yeah, she you honestly <laughs> is. <laughs> said you are going to use that in all of my thinking and of the I, fog commentary. <laughs> I, I did well as a start, and then I forgot about it completely. <laughs> yeah. But I, I like that toast. It sets up a little bit of an ominous vibe. I like it, too. Really, anything I didn't like in this film. But Pattinson, he rejects it, because he's trying to avoid the booze, initially at least. A smart man, apparently, considering how fucking crazy they get. I think... I'm sorry if I'm jumping your notes here, but didn't he say he was like a Puritan? No, he was saying that because he was reading his little wiki handbook, and it said that while they're there, they should avoid drinking. Oh, like the Sailor's Handbook. Yeah, I guess not Sailor. Not Sailor's Handbook. I'm thinking Sailor's, but yeah. yeah. The work handbook, basically. And so he, you know, he's he had some problems in his old job. He's just trying to play it straight, trying to stick to the rules. Like me when I leave my current job. (laughs) Uh, but Defoe says it's bad luck to not finish a toast, so he gets up and gets some water from there. Little sink there. This is true. Apparently, in Germany, if you don't toast, you have seven years bad sex life. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm just bad. gonna go there and not toast because <laughs> I don't care. Oh no. <laughs> uh, but I think this is a great scene between these two. Uh, right off the bat, we were introduced to Defoe's superstition, and also his pretty harsh nature, just immediately demanding that he finish the toast. Oh, totally. And he also reveals he's a little bit of an asshole, not letting him know that their cistern's all fucked up before he took his sip, laughing at him as he spits it out. Uh-huh. But he also makes it clear immediately that he's the only one that gets to look over the lantern. Yeah, the, light, the lighthouse. The lighthouse, exactly. Uh, but after dinner, we get some shots of Pattinson working hard, and some shots of Defoe not working at all. Uh, he takes off all his clothes and gets lost in some sort of weird drunken haze, <laughs> just staring at the lamp. Yep. Yeah, doesn't Pattinson go into the... No, that's... I was... 
maybe anything I'm missing that up, but I thought Pattinson either goes into, he's in the bottom of the lighthouse and just looks up and then we see a shot of Defoe. Probably not. Might have just been Defoe himself. Yeah, I think that's a little bit later. Okay. So, yeah, right now he's just slaving away. All right, so we the, the, the camera focuses on him and Pattinson somewhere else. Got it. And then Pattinson, he goes for a little walk along the shore and looks over the water. This is still night, correct? Or is this yep. daytime? Yeah. Nighttime, yeah, the night shift. First night. Uh, and weirdly, there's some logs floating out there right at the shoreline. And, uh, huh. Or they start they start coming into yeah. the shoreline. In, in the theater, I thought those were boats, like upside-down boats. I didn't even know what those were until I got a better look at them. I was like, that looks like logs. Mm. Yeah, and of course, we, we understand what that is later in the film. But Yes, no, I, I assume that was foreshadowing to something. Yes. Yeah, we even see a little body floating in, in between the logs, which will definitely give Again, an explanation big of. foreshadowing. <laughs> I didn't, ex like, once the explanation came for those things, I didn't realize we were doing this, like, where it was going. I was like, wow, we're going there, okay. Well, the next thing you know, Ephraim is also walking under the water towards the body, uh, looking totally deranged. And then we get our first glimpse of the mermaid swimming in the water, and we hear her siren's call. Yeah. And the, that's one of my favorite moments in the film. I just think the mermaid shot is beautiful, and I kind of a thing for mermaids. Not like a sexual thing, <laughs> but... Just my love of water. There's something about mermaids that I just think is super cool. I guess you don't probably want to be a mermaid at some point. Uh, I, I prefer to be the uh, the Namor type of Atlantean. Oh yes, of course. <laughs> where you have the two blue feet. skin. And the... I don't know if they ever get into that into that where <laughs> if there are mermaids at all in Namor stuff. You know, I don't. I don't think so. Same with Aquaman. I don't know if we ever talk about yeah. mermaids, which is weird, but. I think there's maybe, like, some sort of merfolk type, but they're more like bad guys. I, I could believe that. <laughs> um, and this is the first sign that we get that Ephraim, you know, he, he's got some issues. We don't know what the body means right away, but he's clearly haunted by something. This is a similar theme, uh, not just the body, but with we, with the mermaid. We have similar theme. I remember back in the bitch with uh, some, some sexuality themes. Oh, it's... It's been quite a while. I know, it's been quite a while. One of the <laughs> things I strictly remember is I think one of the brothers was looking at his sister. And oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Their cleavage, yeah, and they're like cleaning the... Yeah, no, I remember that. I, why do I remember that? Because it's like, because <laughs> it's, you know, incest, implied incest, so it's like... Yeah. Or at least suggestive boys starting to realize... Yeah, you know, curiosities, developing boys. Pretty much, like that, that is, that's what I remember about it. Yeah. Uh, but the next morning, we get Defoe going to bed as Pattinson's waking up, and we get some more fart humor, and, uh, yeah, as I mentioned, the first one got kind of scattered, kind of awkward laughs, but this one felt a little bit more of a, I don't know, a short... A big chuckle. Yeah. Erupted from the audience. Uh, but Ephraim, you know, he goes through his day, he fixes up the sister, and he cleans a bunch of other random shit, and it's during this cleaning sequence that we get introduced to the third character on the island. And that's crusty old one-eyed Jack, the seagull. The seagull. In old one-eye, he's standing on his stoop where he likes to be. Probably stands there every day on the island. Yeah, probably. And then here comes Pattison with his pretty face and nice mustache to try to get him to move. And he even th throws a rock at him. Which I thought that was pretty rude. Yeah, that's the best idea to do. They're yeah. not ravens, but... And unfortunately for him, his dickhead boss happened to see him. Later that night. Yeah, anyway, <laughs> after that scene, we get a scene of poor Ephraim... Dragging an oil drum from the bottom of the lighthouse stairs all the way to the top where he meets Defoe. And he immediately tells him to drag it all the way back down. Essentially calls him an idiot for bringing it up there. And ever since I've seen this film, I've been trying to rack my brain 
trying to figure out what the allegorical nature of it's supposed to be. The whole film itself, or that scene in particular? The whole film itself. Okay. Yeah, and even though my fourth viewing, I'm really not sure. I mean, some some art films you see, and pretty clearly, like, by the end of the film, you really get a grasp of what they're trying to say. Of course. But this one, <laughs> like, you got any ideas? Or I do, but I guess we can... <laughs> do you want to do that now, or save that for later? Because... Yeah. Well, I for some reason on this viewing, I thought the stair thing maybe had something more to do with it than I realized last time of him okay. dragging it down, having to drag it back. But oh yeah, right when they're in the lighthouse, that's right. I, yeah, okay, yeah, it brings it all the way up. Yeah, and it makes him go back down. I mean, German expressionism in the day, like it's uh, the lighthouse is kind of metaphorical to like Tower of Babel and in um, Metropolis, perhaps where it's like the working class and something like that. Some sort of like I don't know, maybe corporate kind of thing. You have this old crusty bastard up there who doesn't really do any work, and he's constantly making that guy do work, constantly making him feel like he's lesser, and... I have an idea. Or at least my... Not my opinion, but, like, again, one of my theories, but I'd say that more towards sure, the end, because sure. of a certain individual Defoe's character brings up. You'll, you'll see what I mean. Oh, okay. Oh, okay, yeah. I guess we'll keep going then. Yeah. Oh, but anyway, after he's done dragging that thing all the way back down, we get our second dinner scene this one we learn a little bit more about the characters. Defoe reminisces about his time working on a sea ship, and Ephraim looks like he'd rather be dragging that drum back up the stairs and have to listen to him. <laughs> Defoe talks a bit about the dangers of sobriety at sea, and how booze is the only thing that keeps people from going bonkers. I think you can sort of relate to that in a way. <laughs> yeah, geez, especially that, this week. As, you know, sorry about that. <laughs> you take a sip. Yep, lovely, lovely purple booze. Um, and Ephraim tosses in that booze just makes people stupid, and this kind of softens the tension a bit. Now we also find out that the man, Winslow's, or, uh, yeah, I guess Winslow, since, uh, that's what he's going by at this point in the movie, Ephraim Winslow. The man he's replacing kind of went crazy and killed himself, or died mysteriously, they don't quite make clear. But they do say that he was raving on about merfolk, so, it's definitely, Ooh. uh... <laughs> There's something going on there. Yeah, and Defoe also mentions that he thought that St. Elmo himself cast the fire into the lantern. <laughs> yeah, I heard that, and I was like, St. Elmo's fire, so... Yeah, and I was kind of like, oh, you know, who's St. Elmo? I know the whole St. Elmo's fire, but I don't really know anything about him otherwise. You know what I think? Oh, did you look this up? Or no? I did, yeah. Okay, I, uh, other than the song, uh, the, the song actually, I don't know if you've... I forget what the movie it's based around is. I don't know if it's a... I don't think it's a John... Um, oh, what's that guy's name? Yeah, that part I didn't look up. Was oh, yeah, it like a series, it. maybe? Uh, well, say, I, I, think, I feel like there was a series. Yeah, uh, maybe it was a movie. John, I'm not quite sure. Who's the guy that made all those, the, the Rat Pack? John, John Hughes. John Hughes, yeah. So, John Hughes, I don't know if it was a John Hughes movie, but there was like the Rat Pack. Um, and the whole movie was like based off of oh, wow. that or whatnot. And it's a Rat Pack. Yeah. It had like Jimmy Moore in it, it had Rob Lowe in it. I think it may have had Emilio Estevez as well. I could be wrong. Yeah, on I feel that. like he's involved with something. But the movie apparently isn't good. Oh, okay. But the song itself is actually about our own Rick Hansen, if you know who that is. Uh, the, the name definitely sounds familiar. The wheelchair man, the man who went around the whole world in a wheelchair, it was inspired by Terry Fox. Oh, okay. Yeah, That's... I think I may have actually seen him at some point. Oh, cool. I feel like That's it was awesome. in Maple Ridge. I can't remember. I can see that, but <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he's one of my inspirations. A very mm. a great man himself, and 
Yeah, St. Elmo's Fire is kind of about... I believe he... I forget the creator or the musician that wrote that, but the artist, yeah, I think maybe either dedicated that, him to, that to him or something else, but... Yeah, again, music has nothing to do with the movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Um, tangent. Yeah, but ahead. the actual St. Elmo. So apparently he was a 2nd century bishop, which, by the way, 2nd century, that's fucking forever ago. Uh, that's forever <laughs> ago, and that's early on as well. Yeah, and I guess his, like, parish was, like, right next to the Italian coast, so, like, sailors would always come to him with problems. Ah, I see. So he became the patron saint of sailors. Sing me a song, you're the piano man. <laughs> but but he was also apparently the patron saint, or not patron saint, but just saint of abdominal pain. Oh. Because I guess he was killed with someone stabbing him in the abdomen. Oh. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I should have called on him a little bit when I was having my abdominal migraines all the time. Oh, jeez. Could have done some uh, Hail Marys for me. Oof. But anyway, so Ephraim just scoffs at this, uh, what would you call him? The guy he's replacing, he just scoffs at his stories and calls him tall tales. And Defoe brings up that he saw Ephraim in the gall having a little bit of a spat and says it's dangerous to fuck with a seabird. And Ephraim, again, just calls that tall tales, and that earns him a slap upside the head. Yep. I like that he realizes instantly that he's gone too far, Defoe has, and he tries to clear the air, but it, it really doesn't work, and he ends up just ducking his head and hoping he doesn't get a beating. I actually kind of felt bad for him in that moment there. It's probably one of the few moments I felt bad for him, because he's such a prick, <laughs> but... It, it kind of made him feel like an old man. But after that kind of awkward dinner, Ephraim is sitting in his bed, trying to read by the moonlight, an old one-eye shows up again to start pecking at his window. And for whatever reason, this inspires him to get up and go masturbate in the little boathouse. Yep. And I thought Edgar showed some of his kind of curious sense of humor again. When he had the waves crashing right when Ephraim was climaxing, I thought that was a little bit of a, a curious Salty. choice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then awkward for him, as he's having a nice little post-coital smoke, he notices Defoe doing some sort of weird debauchery up in the lighthouse, standing naked right against it. I don't know if you remember that shot, but that was a, a weird one. <laughs> uh, but the next day, doing his chores, Defoe shows up to do some early morning bitching, and he brings him into the kitchen, and we get a great bit of old-timey dialogue as he's complaining about the floor not being cleaned. Yeah, and I wrote this down here because I thought it was so funny. He says, "'Tis begrimed and bedabbled, unwiped and washed and disdained." <laughs> like, who, who speaks this way? I love all this dialogue. This is great dialogue. Uh, he also calls him a dog for the first time and the second time during this scene, which we find out later Ephraim has a ton of issues with. I mean, this is when things start to take a turn, and Defoe becomes a truly maniacal bastard. We get some more great bits of dialogue of him just berating him and telling him, you know, you're going to do what I say and like it because I told you to like it. And then he just starts following him around and writing notes as he's working. God, I would fucking hate that guy if he was my boss. Yeah... I've had some some people in my time who've done that kind of thing. Not quite as as bad, but just always over your shoulder watching over you. And man, is it so irritating. Well, he even puts him to work painting the side of the lighthouse tower. I remember that, yeah. And suspends him over the edge, which goes terribly almost immediately as he drops him down. And then old one-eyed Jack shows up again just to give him a couple bites while he's down and starts pecking at his leg. And Pattinson actually takes a couple swats at him here. Uh, we get a third dinner scene, and Ephraim stands up and tells Defoe to stop calling him Lad or Dog. We call him Winslow instead. And they also get a little bit more familiar when we find out that old Ephraim, he spent a little bit of time working in our native land of Canada. Mm-hmm. Working for the Hudson Bay Company. Yes. Yeah, one of the oldest companies in Canada, even pre-existing the country itself. It, uh, it got bought out by America a few years ago, and then it got sold, and Canada rebought it. 
Oh, did they rebuy it? I didn't I hear about that. I believe so. Could be uh, wrong on that. Yeah, I even wrote in my notes, uh, by the way, the Hudson Bay Company was one of the Crown's main tools for crushing and subjugating indigenous peoples uh-huh. in occupying their land. Yeah. So, uh, not a huge fan of that not company Not the best thing in the world, let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, but anyway, apart from that, uh, this softening scene is also when Ephraim starts to betray himself a little bit. When the boss man starts asking why he ditched the life of a timberman, Ephraim explains that it just wasn't really for him, and he starts acting a little bit anxious and talking a little bit fast, and Defoe starts to catch on that maybe something's up with him. Ephraim also asks during this scene why it's bad luck to kill a gull, and Defoe tells him it ums the souls of sailors what met their maker. Which is another bit of dialogue. Pretty much all the Defoe lines in this are just so well delivered. I wonder where his inspiration came from. I know there's probably interviews where it's like, where'd you get the dialogue from? Yeah, I kind of wish I'd watched some of the behind-the-scenes stuff to see if he talked about that at all, but... I've always been a big fan of Defoe, ever since Spider-Man. <laughs> she him in the Boondock Saints? Boondock Saints, yep. Weird film, and uh, he's weird in it, but good. Was he supposed to play the Joker in, in, oh. ba- in Batman? I don't think so, but I've always heard people say that he would have made a great Joker, and I kind of agree. I can agree. Yeah, he was in this weird little film called Streets of Fire, and he plays such like a maniacal villain in that, I, I could definitely see him bringing that to the Joker. Oh yeah, he's also fun in John Wick. I always forget he's in that, but when I was doing my research... Yeah, I, no, that's right, he is yeah. in that. And he's in that uh, Antichrist movie. Yeah, I was going to mention, yeah, Lars von Trier's Antichrist, yeah. Not a film that I like, but one that I'm definitely going to be bringing onto the podcast at some point. That's probably another scene-by-scene one, eh? Uh, it's been so long since I've seen it, I'd have to watch it again, but... Yeah, that film actually starts with a... I, I won't spoil it, but a crazy, crazy scene. What a fucking yeah. ridiculous movie. Uh, but later that evening, Ephraim is having some more trouble sleeping and starts thinking about taking his trip to the usual uh, boathouse spa of his. I'm waiting for the, uh, I, I, I was anticipating the deleted scene where the Iron Giant crashes in and poses as a lighthouse. Oh, no, it's been so long since I, I, I can't uh, comment. For those who <laughs> watch the film, though, understand that. Yeah, I gotta break that out. I haven't seen that since I was a little kid. But before he can go do that, he realizes that he forgot his tobacco over in the lighthouse. So he heads over to reclaim it. But while he's in there, he hears Defoe speaking in a, some kind of weird language and moaning to himself. Uh, Pattinson stares up at him through the grates, and some weird shit starts dripping down, and he also sees some weird tentacly thing starts slipping and sliding around. I've seen enough hentai to know where this is going. Yeah, I definitely feel like there's some tentacle points on there. I have, I have not. Yeah, I don't think I have either. Never, no, I'm not into that crap. Yeah. Not into that stuff at all. Yeah, hentai, I don't really get hentai. I, pr- I probably watched it just for the production side of it, like, just to see how well it's animated. Yeah, I was just trying to think if it. I ever watched anything out of curiosity, but I don't think I've ever seen anything tentacly. But yeah, hentai is just weird. I don't I don't quite get the appeal. <laughs> probably watch one at some point. <laughs> Again, oh, no. out of curiosity, because <laughs> why not? Yeah, and he gets real freaked out by that tentacle thing, but it's kind of weird because the next morning he doesn't seem bothered at all. He just goes about his life as normal. I'm going to assume what dripped from the scene was most likely ink. It looked more like slime. Alright, well. I could make a cum joke, but I don't think... <laughs> I think it was just... That's pretty, it's really obvious. Like, what else do you think it is? Yeah, I think it was just tentacly slime. Um, and again, you know, you got to wonder how sane this guy is and how much we should actually trust his POV. How about sane for both characters? Well, we're really only looking through uh, Pattinson's POV. That's true. Uh, but it's the next morning, and, you know, he's feeling kind of thirsty, so he goes to get a drink. But that cistern's all fucked up again, so he goes to investigate. And what does he find but a dying gall sitting in it? 
old one eye shows up just to get a couple digs in, as he wants to do. But he chose the wrong moment to piss off Ephraim because he just grabs him by his neck and splats him all over the side of the cistern. Wow, really good uh, action scene, air quotes. Yeah, it, it looks super convincing. It convinced me in a bit. I was like, dang, that looked like they killed the real goal. Yeah. I think I think with with black and white you can get away with blood. Mm. Um, I don't know what they use, perhaps. I mean, you still you'd still want to use a deep color because you know red translated on black and white is obviously going to look, as you said, darker. Yeah, particularly orthochromatic black and white, where it just it almost can't even pick up red. It so you could black. get away with that with with like an ink almost in a way, I guess. I don't know. Maybe behind the scenes I'll see it, but yeah, I'm sure they would want to go with something really bright red so it pick up as really black. Of course. But, so the camera moves up from Ifram holding the dead bird. We move along to the top of the lighthouse. And we get to the tip of its spire where we see the two wind arrows start a spinning. All the veils, yes, the weather yep. means. As the storm begins to brew. And shortly after that, we cut to another scene of Ifram working himself to the bone, as he always does. And Defoe shows up looking rather nervous about the storm. I like how immediately he can tell that Ifram is keeping something from him. Like, as much as he's a prick, he's a pretty good judge of character, this guy. Uh, so the two together, they prep the place for the storm and have a nice lobster dinner afterwards. This is their last dinner on the island. So oh, I believe of... they even, um, sorry for interrupting, I think they, at one point, were going to catch crabs and lobsters. Yeah, they pull up their little lobster trap, which I guess I should mention, because that's uh, Chekhov's lobster trap. I'm trying to remember that, what, where that comes <laughs> in. You have to remind me. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, since this is their last dinner, that old sea dog, why not write sea fog? <laughs> That old sea dog, Defoe, manages to trick him into having a last drink with him. And uh, Ephraim, he tries to do the toast himself, which I thought was kind of sweet. <laughs> Even though that guy was such a dick, he still tries to give him a little bit of respect there. Yeah. Uh, but once he takes his first sip, immediately that old butt starts filling up again and then again and again. My glass is empty. Yep. Singing I can see the bottom of the glass. <laughs> Yeah, and he keeps filling it until they're singing sea shanties together and swapping stories. Uh, well, none of those, I think, were in Black Flag. I'm just gonna put that out there right now. Yeah, I love that immediately after the sea shanty song, he's telling a story about how he was with a, a hooker, and he's like, oh, she took off her bonnet. And I was like, oh, man. <laughs> what else do you call it back then? <laughs> uh, but the pleasant evening turns a hair awkward when Ephraim asks why he wasn't allowed to do the lighthouse shift at all. And the two start a yelling match. But they just laugh it off at this point and have another drink, which surprised is... Uh, I was yeah. surprised by that. I thought I literally thought, like, at one point, fists are going to start flying. Yeah, well, they both think they're going home the next day, so, you know, they're feeling in, in good spirits. This is true. Now, uh, we finally find out Defoe's character name in this scene, so I can finally call him by his name, Thomas Wake. Thomas Wake. And for whatever reason, this seems to catch Ephraim off guard for, for some reason. Hmm. It's kind of odd. Yes. I wonder why. Yeah, Ephraim even gives a toast of his own at the end of the night. He says, to my friend Tom, and getting off this goddamn rock. Uh, which turns out they don't, and even worse than that, when Ephraim goes to empty out their disgusting chamber pots in the morning, he threw it into the wind and the contents splash back into his face and cover him in grossness. I was wondering whether that was actual turds and... Oh my god, what? <laughs> but... <laughs> Probably not. No, no, of course not. That was pretty nasty, though. Oh, you imagine? yeah, it was. It looked, like, it looked like real stools, I'll say that. Do you imagine how disgusting it would have been back then? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that room's just kind of smelled Hey, man, horribly. people had to clean out chamber pots. Not even just cha chamber pots, but you remember how, like, 
they would have the bathrooms literally be like a slab of concrete or a rock or whatnot. You'd sit on that thing, and then like there's the septic tank underneath, right? People had to like. I'm pretty sure they had to either buried that stuff or they had to like sift through the crap and uh, pull chunks uh, out and transfer it somewhere else. It's so I grotesque. Feel. And in Game of Thrones, whenever you see them walking through the city, there's always people dumping their chamber pots out the window. Oh, I can remember. It's like oh. What was it? I can remember from that. I don't know if you've seen Johnny English at all, but there was one like one. The side characters had to like come up from the sewers or whatnot. Oh. Buckingham Palace, where the old toilets are, and it's just like wow, interesting. That's so grotesque. Yeah. Um. So you know, talk about a terrible start to their extended stay. Twenty twenty first century <laughs> technology, by the way, or mid twentieth century technology, I guess, or maybe even nineteenth century technology. Chamber pots? Not chamber pots. I'm talking toilets. <laughs> yeah. Like actual to functioning toilets. Yeah, they haven't been around for very long. I mean, think about that. We are blessed. Let's really, go that way. Really. Like, we are blessed. Anyway. Uh, but even worse than that pissing in the wind scene, um, we get, immediately after that, we get Winslow discovering a mermaid sitting on the rocks. It almost felt like she was... Was she caught in a netting? Yeah. Uh, she no, was it was like seaweed. Seaweed, that's seaweed. right. Yeah, she was on shore and right there. Yeah, he's just walking along, working his butt off like he always is. And beside him, he sees her body laying on the rock. Uh, he goes over to take a look at her and finds that there's a nude woman and a seaweed all over her. And um, it's a really beautiful and kind of close-up shot in her face. And this is actually the only shot in the movie because they couldn't actually shoot in orthochromatic film. Those kind of film stocks didn't really exist anymore and the cameras didn't really exist. Mm -hmm. So they kind of had to jerry-rig one and create it to be that way. Okay. And so they took the filter off for this scene because they want her skin to actually look smooth and pristine. Yeah, her sk her skin looked brighter uh, in that scene, I'll say that. So it's, on a technical note, that makes sense that they just switched it. Because she probably would have, yeah, appeared darker. Yeah, and they said that not only does it make the skin look darker, it also um, highlights the pores and makes people's skin look rough. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, which is one of the reasons they both look so uh, beat up the whole movie. Um, and he glides his hand down her body. Probably thinking about getting to some necrophilia, which is kind of gross. <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess she's dead. Yeah, supposedly dead. Yeah. He's, like, grabbing her breasts and whatnot, like, ugh. <laughs> but his hand comes to a stop when he finds uh, some gills along her side and eventually glides over the fishy bits of her mermaid yeah. tail. Um, then she sits up and starts singing her siren song and throwing her head back, kind of laughing at him. It was, in the theater, is kind of a scary moment. It was one of the more effective, I thought, unnerving scenes. Yeah, that was... That wasn't a nerd scene. Yeah, something just about the way she's, like, yelling, but the sound just, just kind of off. Muffled and or muted, and I, I like that a lot. Yeah. Um, but after this scene, the storm is just, it takes a turn and gets so bad that the relief ship doesn't come. And on top of that, it soaks their food stocks. Now, pardon me for asking this. It might be a later scene, but don't we see a bit of the lady parts as well in the mermaid uh, yeah we see that a little bit later or, okay so yeah, <laughs> yeah i'll get to that scene yeah bring that up later sorry i guess I'm crazy little moment there <laughs> yes um but yeah this is also when the movie starts to take a turn Ooh. in terms of the alcoholism Ugh. yep uh, we realize that ephraim has been an unreliable point of view character because since the last time we saw him and defoe sitting at the table complaining about missing the boat weeks have apparently passed and ephraim just thinks it's the next day Huh, interesting. I I wondered that. I was, I guess, foolishly taking his side, if uh, Pattinson's side, and not um, Defoe's side. Mm. So, where 
I'm like, huh, okay, so we're having an unreliable narrator, so I wonder who's who's right and if it's just our decision um, to figure yeah. that out. It, it does become wobbly because later on in the film, we get the sense that Defoe is also super untrustworthy and you can't really believe what he's saying. Exactly. So I don't see why he would lie about it at this point, but who knows, maybe he's uh, just a crazy old fuck. I, mean, I just <laughs> assumed it was still the next day, but that's, that's on me. Um, and so I, I think because we're talking about this right now, it's a good time to mention kind of the uh, potential readings that you could have for this film. Okay. Uh, I think this is kind of a boring one, but I, I'm sure people argue about this. Okay. Because people love doing this. Where you could say that everything's in Pattinson's head and that he just, from this point on, goes crazy and um, nothing that he's seen is real and it's yeah. just all a fantasy. Didn't think of that one, I'll say that. But that is quite an obvious place to go. People always love going there, but I always think that's like the most boring example because it's like, oh, kind of what's the point of the film then if he's just nothing that we're seeing is real and it's just him having crazy delusions? I mean, the alcoholism creates that reality, I assume. That's that's the sub... Because usually if you have hallucinations, you have to justify it with, well, that's not how hallucinations work. You have to really be mucked up or you have to have substances in you that create those hallucinations yeah and i guess if you're not or eating stroke. and you're doing nothing but drinking it could definitely like fuck up your brain and make you have hallucinations Probably. but i don't know all the stuff with the the gull it seemed like it clearly had some motivations against him and uh, i don't know but something's going on I'll, I'll say that i just took everything that was happening as legit like the octopus in the top of the lighthouse, the death of the one-eyed Jack, uh, bringing in the storm. I believe that. Yeah, that's mermaid. Not a thing. I believe that all that was reality. Maybe that's just me. I, I just assumed that there was still some magic and supernatural going on. Yeah, I preferred to read that just because I like those kind of things. I like mermaids. I like the idea of the gulls kind of being against them. I will not They're... reveal my read on the film, or at least. Sure. Immediately afterwards, just yet, because again, we need the ending. But anyway, so after that scene of Winslow, you know, starting to lose track of time, Old Thomas takes him out to dig for the extra provisions, since the ones they have right now are so... Right, at the bottom of the lighthouse. Yeah, but it turns out they're just a bunch of bottles of booze, so <laughs> not a great bit of emergency rations. Oh boy. And while they're digging through them and pulling them all out, Tom, he starts giving his usual performance, reciting some old tales from his life on a ship. And he gives a story about how, uh, at one point, there was a bunch of hungry rats that started gnawing at their feet and turned their legs gangrenous. Uh, and that due to that gangrene, all their teeth fell out. And on top of those hardships, they landed on an island looking for food. But all there was was grass. So they ate that grass, and the scurvy ended up fucking up his leg. Uh, but Ephraim points out that earlier in the film, he'd given kind of a different story as to why his leg was fucked up. Something to do with just breaking it and these nurses around. Yeah, but he points out to Tom that, ah, that doesn't quite sound like the story you told me before. And he gets real uncomfortable, and it's like, well, you must just misheard. So again, I mean, it's hard to really trust any of these dudes. I mean, they're both kind of giving false histories for themselves and kind of masquerading as someone else. When it comes to this kind of dialogue or this scenario, I just wait for the next scene. Just because, again, having seen it the first time, I don't know what's going on, so I wonder if there'll be an, either an explanation or... If that's, you know, up to the reader's interpretation or the viewer's interpretation. That's fair. I just, I have to, like, wait and see, basically. You know, that's why sometimes, especially with these kind of films, you definitely pick up different things on the second viewing. Of course. Uh, but later that night, 
Winslow, he, he ends up slipping up again, kind of stumbling around in a drunken stupor. He starts talking about his old foreman on the timber job who kept ragging on him, calling him a dog. Uh, except he calls this guy Winslow. And again, that old canny Tom kind of catches on to it a little bit and like, what, Winslow, what are you talking about? Uh, but Winslow is canny as well and also points out that the gangrene story doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because how are those sailors eating the grass without their teeth? So again, kind of showing some of the, the holes in what the other guy's telling him. But this is when the drunken spiral really begins for the film. And basically from this scene on, the two of them just collapse into horrible alcoholism. And they have a bunch of weird exchanges and fights, you know. <laughs> okay, I think I have one rating of the film right now. Justifies why we should restrain ourselves with alcohol. With alcohol. Because if people were acting like this in the day with alcohol, like... Kind of makes sense nowadays why we have those those restrictions at least, uh, or maybe I'm wrong on that. I don't. Know. I don't really know what you mean, but <laughs> but yeah, definitely you shouldn't act this way. I mean, these guys fucking go crazy on the booze. Oh boy, I'm surprised they didn't get scurvy by the way, or a bunch of other things. Yeah, or fa was... failed livers. That's the other thing. Yeah, especially once they start dipping to that turpentine in the end. I oh mean, my word! They're definitely not. Gonna... I don't know how much like how long that stuff has been in there, but it can only be for so long. But it's during this moment here we actually get one of my favorite of the drunken lunacies that they have. That's when Winslow starts knocking Tom's cooking, and he gets so massively upset about it that he calls upon Neptune to completely and utterly wipe Winslow off the face of the planet, and that's basically. Where one of my, that's where my main read comes from. Oh, okay. I, I, yeah. I thought that was such a wonderfully delivered monologue. Oh, it was. Defoe. It was really good. And the camera work just slowly gliding up until it's locked on his face. I, I thought that was an amazing moment. And it really reminded me of, of silent film. But something about the way they shot it really made me think of some of those old, uh, something like Cabinet of Dr. Caligari or, uh... Oh, I hope, I hope the real place is that again one day. Yeah, I mean, we're gonna be watching later this year, I'll just say. That's probably my last pick of the year. I'm excited. Although, the bit at the end of the scene where he says, I liked your cooking, eh, that bit didn't really work for me. After his whole speech, it's kind of just the joke to the end of the scene. But I also have to point out a brilliant shot very shortly after that, with Pattinson sitting below the lighthouse grates again, watching the light turn with the sound of the gears moving and the score. And he's sitting there with the little knife in his hand, and as the light passes over, you see his face, and the light kind of focuses on the knife. Now, hang on a second. I thought in one of the previous scenes he takes, I think it was a butter knife. Yeah, when they're going through the provisions. I might not have written that in my notes. Yeah, I know. I remember he clearly takes, again, Chekhov's knife, uh, without... Defoe looking at him. Yeah, he slips it into his little, his little pocket. And he starts walking around with that thing all the time. He's, like, obsessed with it. So yeah. It's kind of creepy. I assume it's just as defense against uh, Defoe's character. Yeah, probably, yeah. And, yeah, from this scene on, Ephraim, he's just... He's always drunk. I mean, even when he's working, he's got the bottle in his hand <laughs> while he's working. And Well, you can't say that Tom's not, you know... Oh, yeah, Tom's fucked Hitting the bottle as well. Uh, we get a pretty cool montage moment here. Uh, this is the moment that you were talking about earlier. Oh. When Winslow, you know, he's back in his little private hut, uh, doing some self-care. I think self it was in the, <laughs> he in the oil room? Not the oil room, sorry, the, um, the furnace room. No, he's over in their little supply shed. That's oh, where he yeah. always does his jerking off. At the same time that we're seeing him doing that, we also are juxtaposing him with pulling up the lobster trap, as well as fucking the mermaid. And yes. on top of that stabbing his foreman with his, I guess we call it like a spear or a hook. 
Yes, they're all kind of jumping those images together. And that's when we get the shot of the, uh, I guess you'd call it kind of a vagina shot of the, the mermaid. I'm yeah. not quite sure what it was, but... <laughs> Never seen that before. And as far as, you know, and I haven't browsed the internet for like, I'm not, yeah, I'm looking for a mermaid vagina. Online, yeah, it's like, but I've never seen that before, which is again interesting anatomy. Yeah, it was certainly a startling shot. You're like, oh. oh, when you sorry for interrupting. When you watched Goblet of Fire, did you like those mermaids? Um, they're okay. Okay, they're okay. I like those mermaids in Goblet of Fire. They're pretty, they're pretty creepy. Oh yeah, but right when they show the vagina shot, that's when they show him stabbing the spike into his foreman. Wow. And so they're definitely uh, playing with some imagery there. But it also makes me ask the question: Do you think he actually killed the foreman? Because he tells us a story later that he painted himself as just a bystander who watched the foreman fall. And he's like, I could have I could have stabbed him with my spike. He was I saw his back, but I didn't do it. And so that that scene kinda of made me question, like, maybe he was even lying to himself at this point. It's weird. It. It's not it's not where, you know, in, in Prince of Egypt or I guess Ten Commandments, you know, Moses accidentally killed Well, okay, in Prince of Egypt it's I think it's an accident, but in actual exodus it's we're told that he kills the foreman because he's abusing the israelites mm. and so i don't know if so there was at least a reason why moses did that but with Ephraim here i don't know what the clear reason was unless oh i guess it was just because he was annoyed at his boss for him being called dog all the time yeah he said his boss saying? was always ragging on him okay. just as bad as um old tom here so it makes okay makes sense yeah, the, the, I'm not going to say it's justified, but clearly I can see where the motivation is coming from. Oh, yeah. He just has a very short temper. and Two, if that was my boss, he's just constantly ragging on me. Obviously, I wouldn't kill him. I would just quit. <laughs> That's, yeah, but not anymore nowadays, but yeah, you're right. But I guess when you're stuck on that tiny little island... And it's interesting, really in his, in his uh, fantasies there, what the last image is he's... before he's climaxing... That's just always a thing of like, you know, if you climax that image, are you getting pleasure from that image, or the image is leading up to the climax? Dude, That's always knows? a question to wonder Dude, when it comes knows? to that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, but he has a pretty wild, crazy... Uh, yeah, that's... Pattinson's going hard. <laughs> that really I mean, does go... I, want, I wonder if he did do it, or... No, probably, I'm sure not. Probably not. <laughs> but he, he said that he was really pumped to work on this film because of how far he got to push it. Oh, he pushed and, it far. Yeah, he pushed we didn't, it far. We didn't see his Pattinson, but we certainly <laughs> get a, came close, to put it that way. Yeah, I guess you see his butt here. I don't know if that's the first frame or... <laughs> I don't even know. Yeah, I guess, like, all if any Twilight viewers are watching this, like, oh, finally, I can see Edward's butt. <laughs> I guess yeah. I have no idea. Not a very flattering... Uh, I don't know if he was nude at all in, in Twilight. I have no idea. Oh, yeah, by the way, not the first time he's... Cedric Diggory and, and, and Mermaids. Wow, I didn't oh, even yeah, think of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah wow, good in that. a goof. Huh. Well, there's something that <laughs> changed the way the film looks now. Uh, but after that pretty cool montage, he ends up just smashing that little mermaid yeah, pike right. apart. Sorry, and Cho Chang was the one that was his... Yeah, I think I think so. Yeah, girlfriend before Yeah, Mary. not the girlfriend, but like, yeah, his, I guess he has his girl... At the time. Right, okay. Yeah, then Order of the Phoenix, she's all, like, fucked up, and she's nervous to date Harry because she feels bad. No, yeah, no, I kind of like that yeah. storyline. I don't know if you like that at all, but yeah, I, I thought that enjoyed that. Sorry, guys, for just bringing Harry Potter in this. It's just like, wow, yeah, I forgot about this. 
Uh, but after that, we get some more drunken scenes where the two of them really just reach a fever pitch. Like, it's it's the end of the world, basically, at this point, or at least the end of their world. Yeah, and I gotta say, these, these super crazy, kind of hectic, drunken scenes really remind me of this crazy little exploitation flick called Wake and Fright. I think I mentioned either this to you when we were watching it. But it's uh, it's got... Oh, what's his name now? Guy from Halloween. The old man. Do you remember his name? <laughs> can't believe I'm forgetting it right now. Loomis? Yeah, Loomis the actor. But he's in it, and it's this crazy Australian film. And there's just so much crazy drunkenness, it becomes like a nightmare of just drunken debauchery. And this film kind of reminds me of that quite a bit with how crazy they get. Which do you think goes more further with the craziness? Uh, I feel like Wake and Fright gets crazier. I could believe that because it's probably not a. It's probably. I don't want to say like all oh, this Australian films are independent because it's not true. Yeah, it's part of the exploitation movement, so it's definitely pushing some of the boundaries. Oh, certainly. And it's this poor guy who just goes into a town, and just everyone in the town's weird and they're always drunk, and he's like, "Oh, I don't drink," and they kind of push him into drinking, and it just he gets like lost in the outback in a spiral of Oof. crazy alcoholism oh jeez yeah it, it really is like a nightmare on screen it was very well, unpleasant to watch apparently but... one of the ways if you know if you owe somebody money over there you just buy them a beer yeah definitely check that out if, if you guys like this film it's it's a nightmare on screen but <laughs> speaking um... of nightmares back to this one <laughs> uh, so there's another moment I should point out here so after some of the craziness of them being wildly drunk uh, the two of them are having a nice little slow dance together oh yes as Tom sings a song and at the end of the song they kind of sing along together and look at each other all passionately like they're about to kiss but immediately they deflect and get into a fist fight (laughs) and I thought that was kind of an interesting moment yeah there's there's definitely some weird like masculinity stuff going on in this movie there's a lot of masculinity stuff going on in this movie yeah and it's power struggles as well definitely power struggles I thought that was interesting like (laughs) If they're drunk enough, they're almost at an intimate level, and then they have to immediately jump back to weird masculinity and fighting. And now the the fighting starts from um, not from an argument, right? Or is it just like no, they're about to kiss, and then Pattinson pushes them away and puts up his hands. And Defoe's like, "Oh yeah, sure." And okay, and they begin boxing. Okay, yeah. So it wasn't so much like there's no antagonism. Yeah, nothing even really said, and they both seem to be like. It's almost like that's how they're going to express their intimacy instead of uh, kissing. Well, again, that was the thing back in the day. You know, it was in the closet, as they said. Yeah, yeah. I mean, or fine. or if you know, booze just brings out the real person, and yeah, no, I mean, true. obviously, I think probably wrong on this, but guys all on a boat, something's got to happen. Like, oh, obviously, sure. there's got to be them kissing each other or going in from behind and all that stuff like there's gotta be stuff like that happening yeah no doubt no doubt especially you're stuck on there just the two of you guys for forever oh I'm not even talking I mean I'm talking sailors as well well yeah but I was that was day. Uh, transporting it to the this lighthouse true, yeah, thing right. I'm sure that kind of stuff happened same with same with uh, lumberjacks up here most likely ah uh, maybe not it's a little different I love that Lumberjack song from... Uh, that's all I could think of. That's, that was, I was going to make a joke about the reason why he quit uh, no, being no. Lumberjack is because he couldn't stand a bunch of them singing the Lumberjack song. Um, and Ifram, again, to show kind of the uh, intimacy here, finally gives up the goose and tells old Tom that his name is also Thomas, Thomas Howard. And he also spills his beans about why he uh, stole his boss's name. Oh, sh- he, like, gives all the beans away, basically. Yep. 
And I like that he even, like, uh, Tom's like, oh, like, don't tell me. And he's like, but I trust you, I trust you. So, again, kind of an intimate scene with these two. It's kind of odd. Uh, but again, he frames it as he didn't intentionally kill him. He just kind of stood by and let it happen. But, uh, I don't know. It's it's hard to trust anything that this guy's At this point, saying. like, who knows. Especially with how haunted he is by it. I mean, uh, I don't know. Uh, but immediately after that, we get another weird scene where Winslow, or, or I guess Tommy now, I should have put that in my notes. <laughs> hmm. uh, he's out in the rain, and he finds the body of his old foreman lying with his face hidden. And he turns him over, and he finds himself looking back. Kind of a Empire Strikes Back moment. I immediately thought of Empire Strikes Back when I saw that. <laughs> yep. Uh, but then old Tom touches him on the shoulder, and when he turns around, the lighthouse light is shining out of his eyes. He's standing there naked with a boat uh, tattooed on his chest. And uh, I don't know if this scene was meant to illustrate anything or just be a cool visual. What's but your read? I don't really have a read. I, I really don't know. Any ideas on your part? Again, <laughs> I think I you, you describing that. Maybe I'll you know save it for the end. Like sure. I got I got something. And trust me, it's not. <laughs> I, I don't think it's as juicy or it's as you know pr uh, profound as everybody else is saying. I think it's also pretty obvious, but that's just me. But yeah, so that vision it really seals the deal for Winslow here, and he's just he wants to get out of the island now. Uh, so he goes and takes the lorry out, and he's about to head off on his own. Probably to die at sea, because where the fuck is he going to go in that little boat? Uh, but old Tom shows up with an axe, and he smashes the shit out of the boat and screams, Don't leave me. It's kind of funny when he's chasing after him with the axe, and he's like, got that bad leg, so he's kind of leaping <laughs> yeah. around. Yeah, pardon the foe for yep. keeping in character. But back in their little cabin, the two of them have an argument, and Thomas tells him that he found his second's head. Did I mention that? I think I forgot to mention that. Much now. Yeah, during their montage of the masturbation scene, when he's pulling up the lobster trap, right before he climaxes, he pulls up the trap, and he's got the head of his old second in As it. As you said, the lobster, uh, Chekhov's lobster. Chekhov's lobster trap, yep. And curiously, the second is missing one of his eyes. So, on the same eye that the old one-eyed Jack mm. has his missing eye. Hmm. Yeah, it actually kind of made me wonder... Because remember how Defoe in the beginning said that you shouldn't kill a seabird because they have the souls of sailors. That's, that's what that one Jack is probably Jack, the previous. Yeah, that's maybe I was wondering if there's a connection worker. there. Maybe we don't know. Maybe that's Three. why he's choked that he's there. Hey, you're taking my spot, you bastard. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know what the other seabird and the or the seagull in the in their aquifer or the oh, water yeah, reserve. Yeah. Excuse me. That if, one in there. If that's like another one, I have no idea. But during the scene, Winslow tells Thomas that he found his second and claims that Defoe killed him. And Defoe, he just basically calls him a lunatic and says that Winslow was the one who smashed up the boat just now. Which is a weird moment, I thought. And then he asks him how long they've been on the island and says that the island and himself are probably just a figment of his imagination, that he's still in Canada, wandering around frostbitten. Oh, yeah. And I was like, whoa, what, what? Like, I don't even understand what he's doing anymore. Now. I think he's just drunk, and that's also probably where everybody got the idea of it's all in his head. But we don't have that moment where it's like he wakes he wakes up. Mm -hmm. or real, unless, I don't know if films do that. Those types of films where it is, like, in their mind, if they ever do, like, get out of it. It did make me wonder if on that first day, like you said, that you thought he was just, um, that it was the next day. It made me wonder if Defoe was lying. Because again, I'm just—I'm also looking at what I'm seeing as well, so I just 
I take it as a matter of fact, and the fact that we were looking through the lies of, of, of Pattinson's character, it was the next day, so it's the next day. But, honestly, yeah, you could make an, the, the argument of it have been weeks. Yeah, I could see it. Although, I would selfishly want them to look start to look a little more skinny. That's uh, fair. Because That's if fair. they're just drinking liquor at this point, <laughs> there's no food, like, they should be, like... Start and look skeletal because you got you have thirty days before you're dead, uh, thirty excuse me days before you're dead, of starvation, also dehydration. I forgot about that. Sorry. If oh yeah, they'd be way dehydrated. That. Yep. Especially because their cistern's still fucked. I'm oh, sure I mean, uh, if they didn't clean that out, they're really mucked. <laughs> Guaranteed, this guy isn't working anymore. He's just boozing it up. And I don't know how much like if if anybody's getting water jugs from the massive rain that's coming from the storm and then boiling that. I have, I have no idea. Or going to the sea, getting water, and then boiling all that. Like, I, yeah. I don't know. Uh, there is an interesting moment here when, um, after he's done saying all that stuff about how you're probably still in Canada just raving like a madman. Yeah, Tom, he says a line that he said when he was giving his whole, like, revelation of what happened with the foreman. He said that when he sunk through the, the logs and died, all he could think was, I could use a smoke. And he repeats that line right now. Yeah, right after he says, you're probably still in Canada. So I thought that was interesting. I wasn't quite sure what they were doing there. That's the way he copes with stress. Well, that's, what, <laughs> that's what everybody does with, with smokes, or sorry, with darts. Yeah, and then Defoe says that they're all to booze. And so in response to this, Tom decides that it's time to uh, whip up a new mixture to get them intoxicated. Oh, yeah. Of turpentine and honey. That's when he, uh, Defoe yells his monkey pump line, which I didn't quite understand. But this seems to make them go even more fucking bonkers. And Where did the honey come from? I guess it was just, like, another storage? Yeah, maybe they had some, okay. yeah. It didn't look like honey to me, but apparently it's honey. But at that same time, the storm also reaches a new fever pitch, and it completely destroys their cabin. The next morning, both men are in a pretty bad way. To make matters worse, Ephraim finds the work log that Defoe was writing the whole time, and this sends him completely over the edge. Oh, and he was also looking for that throughout the film as well. Yeah, he, yeah there was a scene that I didn't write in my notes where he tried to break in there to, to check what the log was saying. And he was also, I don't know if you mentioned the scene, oh yeah, I guess it doesn't matter, but the scene where uh, he's going to try to get the key so we can get into the lighthouse... Oh yeah, I skipped over that. And too. that was that. That's also like a. I don't know if there was a line there that kind of suggested the. It was a pre. Not Chekhov's sentence, but like, you know, he got like close to him and whatnot. And he was gonna get the key, and I feel as though Defoe says something, and that might be the first moment of talking about um, homosexuality. I think he says it's a queer way to hold your. Oh, shoes, that's your that's shoes. right. Yeah. No. There you go. Yeah, and there was actually a moment in there that I should have written down. Defoe's like, oh, it's the sun's still, you know, still high, and I yes, try to get some winks. He turns over and farts again, as he mm -hmm. always does. And Pattinson just stares at him with such disdain. He says, you're not even human anymore. You're only tolerable when you're drunk. <laughs> Jeez, yeah. And that <laughs> was another thing down. of... I also don't... Do, sorry for, you know, cutting off, like, you know, this, this, this train that we're going on, but... <laughs> Uh, of intensity, but I'm pr I was also confused whether or not they both have the same shifts, and like Pattinson's working the day, and then Defoe's working at night, or if they're both on the same watch. Yeah, what I got, I got the sense that Pattinson would kind of um, top up the light for the night. Oh yeah, he's doing all the manual labor. Yeah, and all that. he'd put all like the coal in to make sure the light would keep burning all night long, and he'd go to sleep. Then when he wakes up, uh, Defoe would wake up again or okay. go to bed. 
I think there was one scene where we see them kind of shifting off there. Yeah, but they also look like they're sleeping together. When I say together, I mean like they're sleeping at the same time. Yeah, at a certain point, neither of them are tend to their duties anymore. They're just drinking and... Well, that's in this part, obviously. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wonder if that would have... There, obviously, we can't leave the island, but that would have been interesting if there were consequences for the lighthouse going out, perhaps. Yeah, but he goes off and he finds Defoe looking for a match, and he lights it for him. And Defoe, he's about to go spiraling off into one of his tall tales, as he always does, one of his little sea tales. But Pattinson, he's, he's had enough, and he just tells him to shut up and starts screaming at him calls him a liar over and over again. Which I thought uh, Pattinson delivered that scene really well. Oh, yeah. Barely is there, I think, any, like, bad acting. Yeah. There's zero, act, ba there's zero bad acting, excuse me, in this film. Both are very professionals. Oh, both yeah, and I'm, I'm sure they both had a ton of fun on this script. <laughs> there was probably times where they had to, like, cut a bunch of times just because of how funny they thought the scenes were. Except for this next one. And Pattinson, he starts screaming about how much he hates him, and hates everything about him but especially hates his farts and as you can imagine this definitely set the theater off into gales of laughter oh yeah <laughs> everybody that. loved that moment and right there like it them arguing about like farts and whatnot just reminded me just sounds like they're an old married couple it does yeah and it is it is kind of funny him he's like he can barely get out he's so angry he starts like shaking the i can't remember what he's some sort of cabinet but he also I don't remember out, if i laughed at that against recording yeah, I, I don't remember if I laughed at it either, but... <laughs> then he finally points out the report, brings it over to him, and starts reading through it, throwing pages at him. And Defoe's sitting there, like, all indignant, like, oh, well, you know, you deserved it, basically. Uh, but he gets to the last bit where he said that um, they, he recommended them to basically fire him without pay, which is pretty fucking rude. And severance. Was yeah, and severance without pay, yep. Uh, and this is actually a scene where we see that both of them have completely lost their minds. I mean, Tommy, he starts being like, you're trying to ruin me, like, just put me in your good graces again and let me tend to the lighthouse finally. And he even starts begging and it gets real embarrassing. Oh, yeah. And Defoe has another little speech, gives him a dressing down, starts calling him a dog again and Ooh. telling him that his old boss was right, basically. <laughs> Almost starts begging him to kill him. And tells him that he knows that Tommy killed one eye Jack earlier. And finally, Tommy's just like, like, fuck you, I am going to kill you then if you're just going to keep calling me a dog. But in this scene, again, if for the people who want to just say that Tommy's just a complete lunatic the whole time, as he's beating old Tom to death, he sees his old boss Winslow, and he also sees old Tom looking like Poseidon or something. <laughs> that's that's, Which definitely again, that's odd. part of my read. <laughs> And he sees the mermaid, too, coming all over him as he's, like, pounding his face in. Yep. But in the end, of course, he's just hallucinating. And, and Defoe says, like, you're killing me or something yeah, like that. Yeah, you're killing me, yep. I like that line. Yeah, and then afterwards, after Tommy kind of calms down for a second, he starts to get a little bit weird. And starts getting into some sort of weird fetish stuff where he starts telling Defoe to bark. Oh, and yeah. gets him to crawl around on all fours with a leash. <laughs> and he's like, good boy, good boy. I don't know what that was. And about. I'm surprised he went along with that. That's the other thing is that like Defoe goes with this. I think he was like knew that he was approaching his death, and so he was just going along, or at least going along before he would strike him. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, true. Like, yeah, that's, at the wrong, at the right moment. That's right. So, but I really hope that someone of the production team went through and cleared away all the stones from like the lighthouse to that little grave. Because he really was walking on all fours, and you hit a rock on your knee, like that can fuck you up. Uh, it would certainly. 
Uh, but anyway, he leads him over uh, to a hole that he dug and tells him to throw himself it's in. It's actually the hole where the storage... Oh, yeah, the jar, provisions. Mason jars were. Yeah. I guess they never filled it. Yep. Didn't refill it, so... Yeah, that makes sense. I was wondering when he had time to go do that. Yeah, no, it's just they, they never refilled it, so I like that. Yeah, and as um, Pattinson starts filling the hole that he's laying in, Defoe gives us his final speech as he has dirt thrown in his face. And mouth. In mouth. Yeah, which must have been a super gnarly scene to shoot. I mean, uh -huh. you could hear it in his voice that dirt was starting to go down his throat. But Defoe, I mean, the guy, you know, he's he's great. He's Fucking great. professional. He's, he's absolutely wonderful. Yeah, and he asks Tom if he wants to see what's inside the lantern. He kind of drones on a bit. I actually ended up reading the script for this scene. Because I listened to it over and over, trying to figure out what he was trying to say with it. So how'd you find the script? Uh, apparently they released it shortly after the film <laughs> came out. Nice. Is that the final script, like, final draft script, or, like... It's final draft, but it's a little bit different here. Of course. I mean, it, obviously, Defoe paraphrased and or did his own thing with it as well, but... Yeah, like, apparently he started this scene by saying, You said you're a God-fearing man, Tommy. Which wasn't actually in the movie, so... That, but I wrote that, this part... That changes everything, in a way. Yeah. Not everything, but that, like, that says something different in the scene. Yeah, I guess it kind of does. Makes the scene sound different a bit. I don't know. Go ahead. Oh, what protein far swim up from men's minds and melt in hot Promethean plunder. Scorching eyes with divine shames and horror and casting them down to David Jones. The others stay blind, yet in it see all oh, the divine and the fiddler's green sent where no man is suffered to want or toil that is ancient, beautiful, and unchanging. As the shade who girdles round the globe. You'll be punished. And I still have no clue what that scene is saying. Like, well, I mean, one of it. one of them, one of again, I got one of one of the words there again. Got into my read. Oh, okay. That way again, I think it's pretty obvious at this point what it is. Now, I assume this is probably a poem. I don't know if you looked that up. I, or not. I didn't. Maybe I should have. It I read probably it like is times. a poem. I feel like it's a poem. And I kept being like, I'm sure there's got to be something here that I'm missing. Like it's, it's from somewhere. Like it's got to be from something. Yeah. But uh, we will find I, that. Maybe we'll tell you guys something about that later. Yeah. If any of you guys have any clue, uh, send us an email over at the or comment place. on the on the channel. I have no idea. I'm not sure if they can do that. They can. Can they? At no. least on at least on the app, like the or the website that on Podbean. I find oh, it's like a little comment section. Yeah, there's there. a comment section. Probably should go through it one day. Yeah, there's send us something, folks, if you have any ideas on what that means. But I've got no. Or your read. Uh, but anyway, so he supposedly dies, Air and quotes. halfway through digging, Tommy panics and remembers that he needs the old key that the bastard's got. So he hops down and grabs it. But before he heads up to the lantern, he decides he's going to have one more cigarette. Uh, I guess all the killing was kind of tiring him out or something. I need a smoke. I need a dart. Maybe it was uh, part of that post-coital kind of thing for him, because he kept smoking after that. I, I don't know. 
But unluckily for him, it turned out that old Tom wasn't dead, and he charges in with the axe, saying that the lantern is his. Gets him real good in the side. Yeah, fucks up his arm. Just like Thor with Thanos. Yeah, he picks up an old teapot and smashes him upside the head. Is this where the knife comes in? Uh, no, uh, Tom took the knife from him That's earlier. That's right. I thought so. Yeah, I think it was right before that begging scene. Yep. Uh, but instead, he picks up the axe and just plants it right in his old uh, brain box. Oh, yeah. Nice spray of blood onto him. He has his smoke, and he picks up his canteen, and he gives Tom's usual toast one last time in the film. Which I thought was a nice touch. Well, at least they're not yelling at each other. That's true. Then we head off to the lantern for the final moments of the film. And in the tower, Tom, he's so fucked up at this point, he has to crawl up the stairs. So that was kind of funny. The score takes on this kind of ethereal, mystical type of sound. And we finally enter the lighthouse. Uh, we get a look at the gorgeous lantern that they've got for the film, uh, which is apparently made based off old lantern designs. Of course. Yeah, it looks super cool. I, uh, I've never really seen what the inside of a lighthouse looks like in that way, so it's cool to see. They said it was so bright, because the island they were shooting on in Nova Scotia was pretty close to like a town. Yep. And so they said that they were just shining their light into like people's houses at night, and people were complaining. <laughs> And they're kind of like, oh, fuck. Why is the lighthouse on? <laughs> you don't even use those anymore. Well, sort of do, but still. Oh, and I should also mention... Don't forget that. They are saying that orthochromatic filming uh, meant that they had to use, like, a ton more light than they normally would have to. Oh, of course. And so they said that uh, a lot of the scenes with Willem Dafoe and Rob Pattinson sitting down for dinner, they couldn't even see each other over the light of the lamp. Jeez. Yeah, it was just blinding in between. I figured... Yeah, so I can't imagine how bright it must have been for the this scene that happens right here. Yep. Uh, but he looks at the lantern, and it stops moving around, and a little panel opens up. And this is the scene that probably makes me the most puzzled throughout the film. Okay. It's a really cool moment. But yeah, the panel opens up, and he kind of sits and stares inside. And at first he looks at it with a sort of pleasure, but very quickly it starts to overwhelm him with light. Yes. And we have that awesome screaming moment where... It's so bright and you can see his tonsils and the scream has kind of got a weird sound to it. It's muted, actually. Yeah, muted. Yeah, it's a really cool moment and uh, I, I don't really know what it's... <laughs> I don't really know what's happening. <laughs> One, it reminded me of him just going in there and like the panel opening up kind of reminded me of, again, opening the Bioshock Infinite where DeWitt goes into inside, I guess, the lighthouse itself. Not the lighthouse itself. Pod. The pod and then he goes up to Columbia. Mm. I just remember that. Itself. Yeah, it's a great moment. But yeah, because, I mean, maybe Defoe had, like, I don't know, if, if there's some sort of spirit in the lighthouse or something. Oh, the wait, there's one more scene. No one more scene, but there's the end scene. Well, yeah, there's one more scene. Right, I guess we can finish it off. Uh, he ends up falling down the stairs, and then we fade to white. Yes, that's right. He falls down the stairs. Yeah, he, like, leaps his hand back and just goes tumbling down all the way down. Uh, but we cut to him one more time. Uh, and he's laid out on the rocks, and several seagulls are picking at him, particularly around the liver region, I thought. Yes. Uh, Pattinson also has one of his eyes plucked out, which again I thought was an interesting... Uh, I forget that. I forgot about that. <laughs> third uh, missing eye in the film. Um, and now that I mention it, I, I don't actually... Maybe I shouldn't say this. Maybe this has to do with your... Um, no, go ahead. ...read. Because I had a whole little bit about Prometheus here at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I said, of course, I'm sure most of you guys know Prometheus... He ended up getting punished by Zeus. Well, why is it he got punished? Uh, stealing fire. Giving he was it to stealing the... fire. So he was giving fire to the humans because yeah. Zeus would not want, didn't want that. 
uh, because he wanted the humans to be stupid. And Prometheus was like, let's show compassion on these guys, so mercy on, on, these, yep. on these critters, and gives them fire. And I'm sub- I don't understand why Zeus doesn't just take it away from them, since he's you know the god of gods, but we don't talk about that. Maybe it was kind of like, it's already too late, the floodgates are open. Yeah, pretty much. So, so anyway, punish you. Yeah. gets punished. By being bound to a rock, with an eagle eating his liver every day, and it would grow, and then... Eagle would do it yes. again and again and again. Do you know how he was freed? Now, was it Hercules? I it was think? on the way to one of his challenges. Not challenges, but... But on the way, in the journey of Heracles, excuse me, mm. he's just on his way to do another challenge, and he sees Prometheus, and he shoots... He shoots an arrow, is either at the bird or the chain. I think it was the bird. <laughs> and kills the bird, and I think Prometheus later frees himself, but after that I don't remember oh, okay. Yeah, I meant to go back and reread some of the story of Prometheus, but I just didn't get the time, so. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's all I got. <laughs> that's it. And then we have the credits. Yep. Do you know the song that's playing? No, I, I should have written that down. Okay, fair enough. I but know. I do like that song. It's a fun little song. So, as you can probably imagine, as it was hinted at, you kind of know probably my read of the film. Uh... It has heavily to do with Greek. So, the lighthouse. Metaphor for ascension to Olympus. Interesting. Hmm. Especially when the light, uh, when the panel opens up inside the lighthouse itself from the top, I was like, oh, is he, like, seeing the light? And he's going to Olympus? We had Poseidon mentioned, we had mm-hmm. name dropped, we had Prometheus name dropped. Yep. Um, and mermaids are associated with Poseidon. Davy uh, Jones, Davy famous Jones, part of that. <laughs> I just don't think so. I think that's a different thing. Uh, that's a sailor's tale. But sailors usually had, you know, tattoos of Poseidon, I believe, tridents, and you know we see the octopus, and sometimes Poseidon is known for looking in the shape of an octopus. Again, depends on the depiction mm-hmm. and the and the illustrations. And you know, Will Defoe turns into Poseidon at one point, so I was just like, well, this is just. Poseidon at sea. I'm surprised, by the way. I didn't think of this till now. We didn't do anything with Cthulhu. I'm surprised at that. Though this 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 film, the sorry, the year it takes place, which I guess like what was it, the 1890s? It was the 1880s? You said. I think it was like mid 1880s. Okay. Yeah, uh, like predates you know, H.P. Lovecraft by 40 years, 50 years. I yeah, think. About, 60 years. Something like that. Yeah, about 60 years. That's like far, but. Yeah, and I, and I also wrote, like, below that, the end of the very end, Prometheus. <laughs> Again, I just, I don't know why it came to me. That was just, it's and it seemed too obvious. I was like, this can't be right. Like, just. It could be. Ascent, I mean, he's literally, like, crawling to the top to get to Olympus. It's like, and then at the end, he's just denied it. I'm like. That's interesting. Yeah, I didn't even think about that angle. Huh. Well, but I feel like my, uh, that's a stupid angle to go with. I'm like, there's no way. Like, that's too obvious. Yeah, it's funny, I read an interview with Robert Eggers and the cinematographer for this, Joran Blasky, Blasky, I think, and they didn't talk about the film almost at all, they were solely talking about the cinematography. Oh, so. of course, which is what they want to do. Yeah, so I've got no clue what their real intentions were behind this. They were probably very proud of the cinematography, and rightfully so. I don't know if at the Academy Awards, yeah, it happened. I don't know if The Lighthouse was nominated for anything. Yeah, from the interview, I got the sense that this started as kind of a cinematography project. Ah, uh-huh, I see. Eggers wrote it with his brother, but 
it seemed like it was never really something that he cared about too much until he kind of settled on what he wanted for the visual look. Interesting. And again, I, I really don't know what kind of reading to have. There's definitely playing with some masculinity elements. Yep. But uh, otherwise, <laughs> I don't know. For my notes that I wrote during the film when I was watching it, some of these are weird. These are just scattershots. So my first note was talent. And you're like, what is that? Well, we, we were talking about my play, and I was trying to remember the name of the swindler, the the forger, oh, the yeah. guy who was um, posing as Davenport, mm-hmm. and I was like, what's that guy's name? It was Talon. I was like, oh, oh yeah, yes. I think I just remembered halfway through the film, I was like, Talon. There's actually a funny thing about that in a second. Uh, second note was, you'll, you'll hear this in the stinger, but throughout the film, I was joking about like, oh, this is, this is clearly like... X and X uh, being shown. You'll see what I mean. And I wrote Luke Skywalker on the first Temple Island. As in what he probably went through like some of the time when he was on that island. <laughs> I don't know. It's just a joke. It was just a funny joke that I meant to say. I think I saved fair. it for the very end. But again, if you watch it, he probably went insane at some point on that island. Oh, yeah. Um... Third note being, actually my last note before my reads, uh, Ephraim being how I thought Warren Kramer behaves. So Warren Kramer is my uh, mm. character I played uh, in the play, and I initially thought of him as, I don't even know if I said what the play's name was. No, I don't think so. Oh yeah, I was in a play, if anybody knows this, I was in a play called The Late Christopher Bean. By the same guy who wrote, I was about to say Wind in the Wind, I think Gone with the Wind. Oh, uh... I believe so, I could be wrong on that, I don't remember. I, I still have my, I still have my, uh, what do you call it, I still have my, yeah, what are those called? <laughs> playbook, I guess. Not yeah. Really, not playbook. <laughs> I still have my script with me. But, the way I wanted to act as him, or the way I was going to act... Honestly, was just this loser, this loser of a character, this this violent man, and everybody told me that's not the way to read him. That's not a good read of the character. I'm like, I'm just basing him off of real life stuff, and the typical low income socioeconomic status individual who's just trying to survive by any means. Painting, pretty much. <laughs> and that's what I thought it was, but it really it was just this young painter that. Who loves this girl, and I still, I still maintain that was a stupid idea on her part to fall in love with this guy. But that's just me. Hey man, you know he was he was a unique type, you know. Sure. I mean, he was an artist. But yeah, that's why I'm I'm just like (laughs) wow. And it's funny that I bring up the play again. This was (laughs) circling everything back. This is I wanted to see this film, but I was because of the play I couldn't see it. So. Boy, that would have oh, made yeah, me yeah. think of the performance a little differently. Yeah, and I, I, tr- I think I tried to get some other people to go see this with me, and like no one was, no one was really interested. I don't think anybody. Yeah, so I just went and saw it myself. I was probably wanting to bring Johnny with you at some point or to see it, but obviously that did not happen. I wonder if he's seen this film. If he hasn't, I'm gonna Ooh, show it yeah, to him. Yeah, he needs to see it. Yeah, he needs to see this. This is a good film to watch. Yeah, the ending is interesting. I guess. Yeah, just as a piece of experiential filmmaking, I just think it's great. It looks amazing, the score is great, sound design's brilliant. I love that foghorn, like, ever-present. Yep. 
performances are great, especially Willem Dafoe. I mean, this might be a career best for him. Magnum Opus, perhaps. Yeah, he, you can tell he just loved all the lines he was oh, delivering. He was into it. Yeah, I, I, you don't see this film often. This, this is the kind of film I talk about, or maybe not I talk about, but this is the film that I think I think of when I'm waiting for an actor to have that moment. Mm. And I'm pretty sure this is the one for Pattinson and Defoe. Yeah, and it does it does make me feel more excited for the Batman to see where Pattinson's going to go with his Honestly, career. I think this film and Tenet have made me say... I'm, there are plenty of other films that made him break away, but he certainly... I think he's broken away from the Twilight Curse. Oh, yeah. yeah he's really good in The Lost City of Z. Yes. Um, not, not, a, not a favorite film of mine. It, it actually just realized like a week or so ago. That, that's another film that he was in with Tom Holland. Tim and Holland were in that new movie, uh, The Devil You Know, I think it was called. And they're both great in that, too. So I was like, hey, look at these two guys working together more. But Lost City Z is kind of a, I don't know, not a great film, but he was great in it. And everything I've seen him in since then, he just keeps getting better and better, that guy. He was in that Remember Me movie, which is... <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot about and that. And <laughs> was that other one that... One David... Cronenberg film you said was it trans uh cosmopolitan cosmopolitan right yeah i think he was another one too the map of our stars or something i, I haven't seen that one i don't know if it was his decision to be in twilight and i shouldn't put down those films or that series but just like i think brianna was telling me that when he signed on to it he thought it was like an indie film seriously yeah and he like didn't know he... oh wow <laughs> I, I don't know he got no because he certainly had a teenage look not teenage look but one something that teenage girls and middle uh, middle aged women would like fawn over uh, as Cedric Diggory because he's, he's a handsome lad we will say that he's oh, yeah. mostly he's very much a handsome lad looked terrible in Twilight but everything looked terrible in Twilight well, it's, he was it, terrible in it but who could be good in that <laughs> yeah I mean again I, I please don't think that you know he's a bad actor no for, he's great you know, being in those films I I just don't know if that script was great. Oh, it's horrible. Or Catherine premise. Hardwick is a terrible director, in my opinion. I think she's just miserable. Were those films all by the same director, by the way? No, but okay. the first one... I've only seen the first two, yeah, but both enough. them were terrible. What's funny is Jackson Rathbone is in that It's in that franchise. Oh, yeah. I think you may have mentioned that in our last I think so. He's horrible in it. Just horrible. <laughs> the worst actor in it, I think, is Jackson Rathbone. But 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 anyway, that's not this film. Perhaps yeah, perhaps <laughs> the wrong career to go into, unlike Harrison Ford. But oh god, I saw Jackson Rathbone in this weirdo horror movie a little while ago, and he's still terrible. All these years later, hasn't improved. Still just terrible. <laughs> <sighs> Sorry, buddy. Uh... Maybe you'll find your calling one day, or maybe you'll find <laughs> a, you get your big break at one point. He keeps getting work. I mean, it's a, it's a steady job for him, you know. Sometimes they don't have to be good. Just have to have the connection. I'd like Jack Desenta to get more work, that's for sure. The actor who voiced Sokka. Oh, okay. Yeah. Huh. He's in, he's yeah. in I think he's in The Dragon Prince. I don't think I've heard him in anything else. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I know he's a comedian, so... Mm. Yeah, I should look that stuff up. But yeah, I'm happy, even though I, I still feel like a little bit puzzled by what the film is trying to say. I like your reading on it. Thank you. <laughs> I'm, pr I'm pretty sure it's just a common reading that everybody else has. I, I have no clue. <laughs> I can definitely see all the masculine stuff. The masculine stuff I like yeah. that you picked that up. Uh, I didn't think about that until you brought it up. I was like, oh yeah. Yeah, and I even I was so. trying to think, because I mean, they're both named Thomas. 
Like, is there some sort of dual identity thing going on that we're supposed to look at? Is there a Tom, Dick, or Harry joke there? And I was even going to say with the, the tower being, like, the place that kind of connects them and... Like, is there some sort of phallic? I was thinking that there? right there. I'm <laughs> like, okay, mermaid, vagina, lighthouse phallic, but let's not get free in here. Yeah, exactly. And I was like, is is the phallic nature supposed to have something to do with corporatism? Because I was mentioning that a little bit earlier, too. I, I just have a jumble of thoughts in this film. Yeah, I know. the island itself is, the island is a prison, perhaps. That's kind of... Yeah, I'm just one. I could have a maybe a bunch of different readings, but no unified idea of really what it's trying to say. But I still really enjoy watching it. I've seen it I think five times. Now. I do wonder because I remember at the end the story was based on was it like tales or like real life account, not real life accounts, but like did it say that? I don't. Remember, I don't know if you remember that, but I saw that. I was like what? inspired what? by that. I know that there was like an author who Eggers um, based a lot of the dialogue around. I think that was it. Uh, pardon me for saying that. Yeah, I, sure I that guess I'll it. quickly say her name. It's in my... But I do wonder somewhere. if something like this... Okay, not... Sarah Orrin Jewett was apparently someone who they really used for the dialogue. Okay. Go reading a bunch of her stuff. I should probably find that out and read some of that stuff. But obviously, despite all the supernatural stuff, maybe. I gotta wonder if that isolate, like, stuff like that did occur with you know, lighthouse attendees, or lighthouse workers, excuse me. Oh, like getting stranded out there? Like, in real life, uh, most likely. Oh, guaranteed. Some of those lighthouses would have to be on really, really remote places. Really hard to get to, and I'm sure right in the middle of the ocean. Really stormy. It's a different time. Like, I, I, like I said in my, you know, how I felt about it. was, just, it, it's just a different time, man. Like, yeah, completely different world. It's hard to even think of the same people as us because they would just had such a different life experience and that's what's going to happen in like 110 years from now if True. that's how long ago it was that's why i can't wait till we get to the cabinet of dr caligari i looked up a ton of stuff about 1920 compared oh, to now dude, here we go i, I so, let's go I can't yeah wait. i'm pumped for that <laughs> uh but anyway i guess we'll move on for the night so uh any last words on the lighthouse here or the sea is a harsh mistress the sea is definitely well, harsh. <laughs> and if a seagull goes and grabs your french fries, your chips, your poutine, those are all potato products for some reason, just let them have it. You That's wanna, fair. You don't want to bring a curse upon ye at the beach or at the land that you're in. Fair enough. Do you know that we're going to get a lot of rain soon? No, I'm not somebody, must have, somebody must have killed a gull. Uh, so yeah, that brings my little uh, series here, the Sea Shanties of Horror, to an end. Uh, you know, what did you think? I you mean... know, man, I liked it a lot. Um, and honestly, I think with... Um, I wasn't impressed by Shockwaves. I think... That's fair. Had I watched it a second time, I probably would have enjoyed it more. Mm. I think just the first time watching it through, it was... I don't want to say underwhelming or anything like that. I wasn't like expecting much, but... It was definitely underwhelming for me, and I put it on my shelf, and but... For whatever reason, it just kept kind of coming back to me. And I was like, maybe I should revisit that. I like the totally score. Fair. There was kind of a creepy vibe to it, but it it wasn't quite what I was expecting the first time. And I've been realizing myself that if I don't like something the first time, I go back to the second time. I'm like, well, this isn't actually that bad. Mm. I don't know why I had to stick up my butt the first time around, but ah. yeah, no, I I think I'm I, I'll turn on that even when I was thinking about I was like you know what yeah I was a little too hard in this film at least my my opinion of it is a little I was a little too hard in that because I know I said because I'm pretty sure I said wasn't feeling it mm -hmm. and it's like you know what 
It's a... I'm feeling it, but it's like a very, like, neutral I'm feeling it. Yeah, I think you said it was a very mild not feeling it. Yeah, but now it's like a very neutral I'm feeling it. <laughs> That's fair. Changing it to that. But, yeah, it's love, the, love the fog. I'm starting to like Carpenter. Oh. And literally, don't worry, I think Escape from New York is just a fluke. It's just like the fluke for me. That and you know what? Too, you you know what? Maybe, maybe you know what? I think that one might like. I might turn around on that one. Yeah, just like with Shockwaves, that's very much a mood piece. We'll try again. Maybe we'll we'll try again. Oh, I'll definitely break it out. I love Carpenter. Carpenter's one of my favorite filmmakers. So <laughs> I, I'm slowly turning into a Carpenter holic. I'll say there that. You go. So, or <laughs> Carpenter a file. And I've wanted to that's show sad. you Zombie Two for ages, specifically for the shark versus zombie scene. That was a great fight. That was a great <laughs> scene. Like technically speaking, with you know how long the guy didn't have oxygen for that. That was that was amazing. Yeah, you just don't see a scene like that almost anywhere. Admittedly, so. we probably should have done a scene by scene of that one yeah i think it would have turned see. out better but we know now i'm i think i'm glad that we're confident in not having to do commentaries anymore we can we can do scene by scenes yeah mix it up depending on i don't the, know how much work that is for you depending on the week it's not so bad this week is brutal but yeah. but it's it's you know if it if it turns out a good episode i'm happy to do it so. of course i wonder if any of our previous commentaries should have been scene by scenes Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> I don't know if Primal should have been a scene by scene. Yeah, I think it should have that been. That was literally just a raw reaction. We might even redo that one and have yeah. the pr proper episode just be the singer of like reactions because oh. it literally was just me reacting to it the whole time. Yeah, maybe when we go through the series, we'll do it more episode by episode because they're so short. Oh, they're, Take they're great. And then, yeah, Blighthouse. Favorite movie of 2019 for me? Well, not, I don't know if I could say that because. Probably my favorite theatrical experience 2019. Jeez, so it was such a surprise. Now I gotta go back and think because not half of my experience was watching because I had Battle Angel Lita and then there was all uh, the Ghibli films Ooh, that we watched as yeah. well. But that shouldn't count. Maybe because, new release films. Yeah, new release films wise, we watched that. Yeah, I, I I enjoyed it. I don't know if you we will do if you'll do this again. Horror by the Sea or Sea Shanties by the Sea. I've already got some more lined up, probably for next year. Because <laughs> I've made a big list, and I just kind of picked through, okay, which ones can I do now? Does this mean we, you know, adhere to holiday themes? No, I don't want to, because there's only no, so no. much that I'd want to go over. and Yeah, and I'll be doing horror, you know, not just Halloween specifically. Yeah, I don't even want to go into that sometimes. Like, I don't want to always adhere to, you have to do horror this time of the year. No, yeah. that. Like, it's the diehard thing. I still haven't seen it since I last mentioned it, and whichever commentary that was. No, it's not even... I, I don't care. Like, it's, you can view anything whenever you want. Okay, usually I would want to watch Bambi, for instance, during springtime because there is a seasonal theme to that film. Mm -hmm. And so, in the spring, that's kind of when you would want to watch it. But I would still watch it any time of the year. I haven't watched it Oh, while, yeah. But you don't just watch Ten Commandments or uh, Prince Easter. of Egypt during Easter or Good Friday, which... Yeah, know, why, why you do Easter? I mean, it's Passover time, so fair enough. But you know, you watch Jesus Christ Superstar, or what was that other funky '70s one? Godspell. That's right, Godspell. Oh, I was gonna say Twice. the word, but I think that's actually like a big Muhammad film. So I don't know. <laughs> oh, a big, a big Islam film. Yeah, but I guess we should jump into this. So yeah, what's this? You'll find out at some point. Good night.
I'll say so far, like, I think my favorite, <laughs> I think my favorite film experience this year is still Fantasia. Oh, that's I know great. we saw, I know we saw Akira in the theaters, that was and that favorite. was that was a great. Uh, that was one of your, I think, your best viewing of yeah, that. Yeah, best viewing of that film. But and I've had a lot of great viewings. With even though we missed part of Fantasia, it was it was a treat. Like it was honestly a. It treat was a huge treat to yeah. go in there, even even if that, that there was that woman that was. Uh, oh. Yes, yeah, or those women talking. <laughs> talking excuse yeah. me. Yeah. Godzilla uh, was also great to see on the big screen. Oh man, that yeah. That, yeah, and I'm sad you missed something. it, but Batman '89 on the big screen. It probably was. Is... It pro I think they'll have that back in there at some point. Yeah, it's honestly my. It's become my favorite superhero film. It's not a great film, but I just I can't personally stop speaking, it. it's it's like it's it's not. What would you say? It's, uh, would you say it's guilty pleasure or not even? It's because uh, I know Cap complains like he he loves it too the same way I do, but he's always like I love it, but you know narratively it doesn't really work. But it's not even trying to work narratively, I don't think. You can especially tell once you watch Batman Returns that he didn't give a fuck about making yeah, sense. Yeah, doesn't really... It's all it. about aesthetic and the music. Mood! Mood, exactly. Big mood! And it's, it's just a perfect mood piece for me. I love that flick. But <laughs> I'm gonna say, um, since you mentioned religious films, I already have a series set up for next year where I have religious horror movies. And then the terrible... A kind of knockoff religious horror movies like there's the exorcist and then some of it's kind of like there's a black exploitation knockoff we're talking the original one right the original one yeah. okay good yeah i've got a series of, of that set up for next year so that's a spoiler for you guys for at some point next Oops. year but... <laughs> look for that next year hopefully when we're still doing this but yeah i'm sure a lot Fingers of my picks crossed. now are probably going to be more set in a series but we'll see yeah, they're, they're, we will have at least themes to them. Although, of course, sometimes I'll have just random oh, yeah. one-offs, because why not? Exactly, yeah. But I... It, <sighs> quote Lucas, it's poetry, it rhymes. Yeah, sometimes it just it makes sense to kind of put a bunch of movies together. Lop them all together. Yeah. You clean the brass and the clockwork, and you tidy up the quarters after. There's well more to be mended outside. Actual footage of me and the captain uh, in the, on the boat together. Swamp dog. Swamp. Is that you and the captain too? <laughs> A little bit more lenient, given this century, but. 